Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this edition of Christian Conspiracy Theory. We are your host, Aaron and Matthew Miller. Tonight's topic is talking about just exactly where the location of the sword that goes back and forth in the east of Eden. Why it's in that location. But in order to get there, we're going to have to talk about a whole lot of other topics, such as the dimensions of the earth, just exactly where earth and heaven meets, and all different sorts of good stuff. So, Aaron, why don't you jump on here and describe how we got down this rabbit hole in the first place. Well, uh, I've been studying the heavens for a really long time, and I, uh, for most most of the time, I viewed it as uh, what we call um, alternate realities, in, in or different dimensions. So, uh, so I, where we get this heavens thing is that in Hebrew, heaven is shamayim, which is actually a plural form, and uh, this is why rabbis and um, ancient texts over the time have always viewed it as the heavens as being uh, more than one. Many translations will just make it singular, heaven, because that's what the Septuagint does when it, transform, it translates um, Shamaim into uh, Uranos, it is a singular form, but there are times that the Greek maintains that heavens form, that plural form, and uh, a very important thing, a very important thing we should uh, take into notice is that in Second Corinthians chapter twelve, two to four says, "I know a man in Christ who fourteen years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows." Such a man was caught up to the, to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard the inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So here you can see it's talking about three heavens. There's at least three. And uh, the common debate nowadays is that assuming... Uh, these three different heavens is the first being uh, the sky as we know it, the second being uh, outer space, and the third one being the spiritual heaven. But, as we can see here, this is um, some sort of cosmology being given, and uh, this is actually all over rabbinic and apocryphal texts, uh, this concept of being one or more heavens. 
And so I took my study there, and um, this is where I came. We, there, I assume that there are these, uh, at least these three heavens, and this is how I see it. The first one would be the sun, the second being the spirit, and the third being the father. These are the three um, uh, essences of God. And in, the, in a fourth heaven, that's where they become the trinity, if that makes any sense. Um, and, I, and I get this concept from 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. It says, but, God will indeed, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven will not contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Um, so if I go there to the uh, King James Version, give me a moment here. It says, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. So there are clear, clearly more heavens, but and one in particular, a highest heaven, a heaven of heavens. And what is important to notice here is that it says they could not contain God. They could not contain his essence. And when I first read this, it helped me understand. God, when he created reality in Genesis chapter 1, when he created the reality as we know it, the heavens were set in place. It describes this as being a, an expanse between the upper and the lower waters. Uh, correct? That's correct. And um, so that's... Uh, so clearly it is a plural word, and it describes... This expanse technically means, uh, in Hebrew... Raquia, it is, uh, it means to hammer out into a thin sheet, just a really uh, expanded uh, sheet. Because, you know, if you hammer out something, it uh, covers more surface area, but is thinner. You know this when you, um, when you have a piece of metal and you are hammering on it really hard, um, it becomes thinner because you're hammering it out, but its surface area becomes larger because the metal is still there. It's just the volume has, the, one of the dimensions, most importantly, is decreased. So the rest of the metal has to spread out into a further area, one of the other dimensions. Uh, could you try to explain that a little bit more for me? Well, this is the crux of what you brought me when we were talking about it. And I, of course, showed you that you were looking at this the wrong way because your original question was, where is that angel in the east of Eden that has the sword that guards the way so that we can't go back to where Adam was cast out of? And... I immediately told you that you can't look at it that way or you can't discern 
the proper thing he's trying to relay, which we get it in Revelation chapter 21 when he describes the city that Christ is building. Uh, matter of fact, as we speak, uh, he is building uh, this great city that is going to come down. This city is described dimensionally. It's great, vast in volume, and he goes way out of his way to tell you it's magnificent volume. And a lot of people don't lock on to that, but, uh, you know, just just describing it here from verse 16, and the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as his breath, and he measured the city with a reed 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. So, we had to start from right there, and I started explaining to you the physics of the heavens. Or, more importantly, we translate that today, dimensions. Well, Aaron, I readily took you to a visual aid. I have to do that for you to understand just exactly how the heavens have been stretched when they are obviously spherical in their intent. We know this from, well, Isaiah, the 24th chapter. Uh, he goes to great lengths to tell you um, that uh, in the Greek, he uses the word gyro, <laughs> and there's a reason for that. And of course, other pieces of scripture, he is over the circle, or the, put into spherical terms, a sphere of the earth. Yet he says that the earth is his footstool. So, by putting things this way, once you get through the entirety of the Bible... And after you've had quite a few years underneath your belt familiarizing yourself with the text, you begin to understand what he's talking about. Aaron, remember that God uh, would walk with Adam in the garden, but it was Adam that was expelled, or he fell from the garden. He fell. Yes, and this is why it's called the fall of man. Yes, it is common knowledge, that's what it is. And we have to realize that the only way to explain this is like with a celestial sphere. Imagine this, that you have a beach ball, and that beach ball is clear. This beach ball, uh, around its center, has all of the pictures of the constellations on it. Inside that sphere, free-floating, is the earth. Now you understand that literally uh, what God was talking about was he physically made the earth smaller. In other scriptures we find out that that must have been by one-seventh because of the royal cubit used in the book of Ezekiel. So he tells you, and in several other places, that is the case. So with this in mind, you know from simple gravity that if you're holding a ball, and inside the ball is a ball that's smaller, you know they touch only in one spot. This is also very important as to why, when Christ was born, the star stood over his birthplace. That is called opposition in the heavens. That's what it means. That's what it's called whenever you use uh, this um, in astronomy. Whenever you're talking with an astronomer, he will know exactly what you're talking about. That's when uh, either a planet or a star in the greater heavens 
is directly uh, behind us from the sun. It means being in opposition. And it is there that, whether it be a star or a planet, it is of its greatest illumination. It has its greatest libido in the heavens. It shines the brightest. So with that in mind, you begin to realize just exactly why God said that uh, the heavens are stretched out. It's just like a beach ball. He blew it up bigger. In this case, the earth got smaller. Now, we know this happened in several steps, but the final event for that was, of course, the Great Flood. We know that it shrank in diameter. This is what caused all of the aquifers on the planet to burst forth. We were reduced in diameter. So with this in mind, you can look at this as it were ring gears laying flat on a table. This is a good way to describe it. If you have one gear with gears on the inside, imagine that the teeth of the gears are in the inside and the outside. You put a smaller diameter gear on it, it's only going to touch the larger gear in one spot. If we do this seven times, if we do this seven times, all seven of those gears are going to touch one with another in a singular finite place. And as you turn those gears, that works exactly like creation works. Exactly. That's how it works. They only touch in one singular place. Now, this expands greatly uh, as we get into the end of days. Because there's going to be a very terrible thing that's going to happen during the end of days. We're told that Hades is enlarged. We are told that during this time, um, God uses other chapters and verses to tell us that when this event horizon happens, Aaron, that men will seek death and will not find it. God literally orders death to flee from them. And when you begin to understand what's happening, he does exactly the opposite that he did with Adam, Aaron. Instead of stretching the heavens, we can look at it this way. The gear that's below us, or Hades, he expands to be equal with the surface of the heaven we're presently on, or dimension that we're on which is earth. And this is why we have to be taken to a place that's been prepared for us by him for 1,260 days. Literally, we're going to be going to that place, which he himself calls. That's why he tells us that he's going to gather us from one end of the heavens to the other. He's really talking about an antipode, Aaron. That's why the Bible eternally refers to east and west and North and south. If you take your arms and stretch them out to the east and to the west, you realize that if you start drawing a line from your fingertips, it winds up at one single point at the exact opposite side of the earth. Then if you turn to north to south, you'll do the same thing and wind up with the perfect location on the exact opposite side of the heavens. This is what's going to happen then. When Sheol is enlarged, Per the scripture, the only safe place you can be is exactly 
where these seven gears touch. That is going to be exactly uh, what's described in the book of Exodus as Goshen. You remember that's where the children of Israel were, and that's where the light remained to shine whenever Egypt was cast into darkness. It's going to be the exact same thing, only on a global scale. Now, with that in mind, once you, once you realize that everybody wants you to see a flat sheet of paper, and you stretch it out and it gets bigger or smaller, no, 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 no. Now, you understand that in the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation, he is translating you the most easiest way to show you volume, not height or width or length. To do that, he has to use, well, the common terms at the time, which would be like a square. He's telling you volume. Now, this magnificent city that Christ is building, this is where the many mansions are. This is when it comes down. So you realize that after the thousand-year reign of Christ, the chapter that you just read from, where Solomon declares... This house can never contain you. That's correct, Aaron, because he was building off the schemata that Christ is using right now to build that city. And in that day is when all the gears become the same size. Literally, the dimensions you're referring to, of course, we speaking of them biblically as heavens, they will be of equal proportion. So all these things have been promised, and all these things have been instituted for a reason, because they rhyme, and we can even find this in physics. Now, this information is not solely contained within the Bible. You can look around in different uh, cultures and find this very exact thing. As a matter of fact, I uh, directed you to some very simple videos that I found on how uh, astrophysicists look at this. And how string theory loudly declares that, well, yeah, you've kind of hit the nail right on the head. So, with this in mind, you have to realize that you can actually plot out things and events that's occurred on Earth that we have talked about, you and I, in prior broadcast of Christian conspiracy theory. And we're going to talk about that here in a minute, but with that in mind, Aaron... With this idea and why God City is described as being, you know, going out of its way to tell you that it was equal length and equal height, equal depth. He was giving you volume, and that was very important. And when this city reaches its proper proportions, well, Christ finished. It, it's done. It is ready to uh, be implemented. It is ready to be installed on that foundation stone where the first temple was and the second temple and the third temple. But this has to do with the size of the different heavens and them being stretched or not. Them being relaxed. The point being, God's described all these two events and like I said, uh, during the 1,260 days, to very horrifying effects for those who are in the outer darkness. 
But now you can relay in your mind why it's going to be okay in that place that's been prepared for you by him who sits upon the throne. You're going to be at that location where that gear touches the gear in the next heaven. You're going to be right where those cherubim are that holds the flaming sword that turns in every direction. Now you can put it on a piece of paper. We can make a mechanical device and I can actually show you at any given point where that flaming sword is. And that's how it rotates in every direction. Because when you take that ball that's clear, let's say a clear beach ball, and inside it is the planet Earth, you realize that that planet Earth will always set on the bottom due to gravitational forces. So if you turn it, Aaron... You see that how it's turning just using this model in two different dimensions. The earth is turning and the heavens are turning. And that's exactly what you see every day, Aaron. When you go out to the heavens and you look, you'll take note that exactly on midnight, tonight, you will look straight up. If we get a level and I set it up for you outside and allow you to see what is exactly over your head... You're going to see a different constellation than you will in December. Because they rotate. But they touch only in one finite spot. So, your thoughts on that. And then from there, uh, you can talk about what you found about uh, out about what other cultures say about this. Do they think there's more than one heaven or, or dimensions? Go right ahead, Aaron. Well, what I was asking you, um, could you explain to us, I, I mentioned uh, if you hammered out a piece of metal, uh, the dimensions would change. So say you had a block of metal and you started hammering it out, what would happen to the dimensions? They wouldn't change. Dimensions well, one would, one, the measure of one side, one what? dimension exactly. would become thinner, but the rest... Another dimension would go... Would become greater. Right. Would become greater. That's right. And that being said, um, with these different heavens, uh, you describe them as being gears. And uh, as I was studying these these things in in, in my works and in my papers, I always talked about... I always tried to describe these heavens like gears. And paradise... The Garden of Eden, where Adam once was, that was where these gears came together. They were all together in one place. Right. right. And 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 be, when Adam fell, these move. He moved into an area outside of these gears, and that's why it became. Well, well, see, paradise is number one. It's a place on Earth. It was in the. It was in a place called Eden back in the day. But it is also described in Second Corinthians chapter 12 as being in the third heaven. So the paradise must have been at one point in heaven and on earth. And that's why I always, that's why I always um, understood it like this. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly and, correct. Yes, that's exactly correct. Yes, and we should also note that uh, right after Adam was cast out, 
the cherubim came in and guarded the way. That's right. So, that being said, one of the heavens absorbed Eden, in, in a sense. The Garden of Eden was absorbed into one of the heavens, um, and Adam was cast out of it. That's right. And if you understand it like this, then, well, let me explain what I was saying about God's essence moving throughout the heavens. It's kind of like he made a box with a bunch of different compartments, and he was the water. And his essence, the water, poured into all of these compartments. God is in all of the dimensions, but we know him out of those dimensions in a different sense. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, when I was younger, I always struggled with why Christ didn't know when the end was coming, but the Father did. And so, uh, here my dad tried to describe to me that one has dimensions and the other doesn't. Or one has different dimensions than the other. But we know that the Son is no um, lesser or greater than the Father because they are all God. And if you have looked into the the shield of the Trinity they that um, the early Christians uh, called, they made it, it was basically uh, a shield in shape because it showed the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in a triangular shape, but in the middle was God. Connecting these three um, lines that connected all the those those three parts of the Trinity, they said is not, but they all met together in the part in the middle that says God. Right. And those lines say is. So the Father is not the Son. No. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Father is not nope. the Holy Spirit. Nope. But they are all God. Yes. Neither of them are greater than the other, because no. they're all God. Right. Okay? Just one has dimension, and the other has a different dimension. That's right. And God, in his essence, when he comes into the middle, what we call the Trinity, he becomes, he is without dimension. Right. So, um, this is why, I believe, in chapter 1 of Genesis, it doesn't name any other name of God except Elohim. And that is plural, in a sense. Um, mm -hmm. We know there's there's plenty of different names for God. And we know the Father is Jehovah, or Yahweh, however you try to pronounce the Tetragrammaton, the four letters of God's name. Um, that's the Father's name. But that's not used in chapter 1. Why? Because Elohim is not the Father. Okay? Because, well, how to better say that? Father, the Father is a part of Elohim, mm -hmm. but Elohim isn't the Father. So, Father is Elohim, but Elohim is not the Father. The Son is Elohim, so is the Holy Spirit Elohim. Mm -hmm. So, that being said, 
Elohim was not given dimensions yet when he created reality. God did not make for himself dimensions. And when he, the essence of God, flowed into these dimensions, he became known as these three different names. So I believe, I concluded there, that there are at least four heavens. Mm-hmm. Because the three are the different parts of the Trinity, and the fourth is where they come together, and they are known as God, the Trinity, Elohim. And, um, but if you look into all the other texts out there, they'll tell you that there are either seven, or in one instance, ten. Mm-hmm. But it's best known as seven. And, uh, you once, you asked me, um, today, for instance, that, why do I think there are seven? Is it because of the influence of another text? No, deductive reasoning. Because you described the seven, the divine number seven to me when I was younger, as uh, a color wheel. And we know the color wheel is a circle, mm-hmm. and it's divided into three compartments. And that is red, blue, and yellow. Mm-hmm. That's but correct. in the middle, in the middle, there's a little circle where all those three connect, and that's white. That's purity. That's white. Yes. These are the four heavens, in our sense. Mm-hmm. But there's also a place where red becomes part of blue. It's a transition, and that becomes purple. That's right. And when uh, red is combined with yellow, between them forms orange, and so on. So, that being said, there may be three transitions between the greater three. Mm-hmm. Those greater three ones, and of course you'd... Um, so that would make six. And then when you add the center one, where all of them come together, then you get the seventh heaven. Mm-hmm. The greatest of them all. This is all of these other six combined. Um, and that is... That is why sometimes the angels are numbered as seven. But in the <laughs> right. sense but in the sense of the cherubim, they're described as being four. But really if you think of it, they're not the numbers aren't that much different. If you put a transition between all those four um cherubim, you would have seven, wouldn't you? Well, no, we can't say that because no, I, what the, I'm saying is in that sense. Yes, yeah. You're absolutely correct, but you're looking for the exact detail. We know that there's cherubim in the east of in the east of Eden, that means at least two, right? It's not singular. Mm-hmm. But yes, you are using correct deductive reasoning. You would have to deduct yeah. in your mind that there is seven. And yeah. you're t- and, and that being, go ahead. And your color wheel perfectly exemplifies that. Yes. Um, and another thing I that uh, guided me to this was when I was translating the book of Enoch in uh, chapter 20, verse 7, it says, Gabriel, one of the holy angels over paradise, and over the dragons, and over the cherubim. That being said, I thought immediately that Gabriel must be the highest of the seven archangels. And that's against the common belief that Michael is. But, if, if you really think of it, if Gabriel's over the paradise, and over cherubim, he would be in the third heaven, correct? 
he would rule over the third heaven. Right. And so he's not the ruler of the greatest heaven, the seventh, but he is one of those other six. Um, and it's so confusing because the numbers are different when you're speaking about four than when you're speaking about seven. Right. Because it's four if you're con- it's one, two, three, and four if you consider those um, only those four dimensions. But if if you leave out the transitions, but if you add the transitions, um, number three would actually actually be like number five. Mm-hmm. Because right. you would add the transitions between the middle. That's right. So, Gabriel, in this sense, um, either rules over the area where the Father is or where the Holy Spirit is. Why do I think this? Because in the descriptions of Ezekiel and uh, the revelation of John, when they see the throne, they describe seeing these cherubim. And why I think either they're seeing the Father or they're seeing the Holy Spirit is because of this. When, um, of course, so when we I, think of the throne, we're, we're thinking about the Father, correct? That's correct, but I need to add something when you're done with this thought, okay? okay? But if we know that you cannot see the face of the Father, so technically Ezekiel or John should have died. But if... So, this might be one of the reasons why... Um, why this uh the epistle to this um the second epistle to the Corinthians um describes either in flesh or in spirit spirit they don't know so but if you if these were if Ezekiel and John were in the spirit, then they might have been seeing the Holy Spirit on that throne, and those cherubim are there in the realm of the Holy Spirit. Which would make sense because we we talk about before paradise is um, a part of Hades, a part of the underworld, and the underworld we know is the realm of the dead, correct? So that might be a better description uh, of that. Ezekiel and John were seeing the the, the Holy Spirit, but um, so that being said. Um, we don't know much of where the Father is right now. but Well, well in relationship to Gabriel, mm-hmm. we know that in Luke chapter 1, we have some hints and clues there. He said, well, he says this in verse 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. It never looked at that. But why not? Why not? But this clearly <laughs> clearly what? describes the Trinity. Yes, it, it does. Says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the highest, the Father, will overshadow you, and the right. Son will be called the Christ. Now, in relationship to whom, Aaron? Gabriel just said that the highest was going to be over him. So you've just answered your own riddle. Do you realize that 
Gabriel here states that the Holy Spirit is on his altitude. Here, let me read it one time, one more time for you. What is spoken of is spoken from Gabriel's perspective. <laughs> okay? So, right here, I'm not going to come out and say it because I don't have to. Let me just read it one more time. But remember who's speaking this is Gabriel. So, he's given the data from his vantage point. And that's critical, son. Because the Bible tells you a whole lot more than anyone else wants to relay to you. So, I'm just going to read it to you. And I don't care what the academic theologians say. Listen to what Gabriel says to Mary and understand in your heart he's only speaking from one place, his vantage point. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So, your question as to what Gabriel is over, he actually just gave it to you. You just weren't listening. So, this brings up a very important part that the seventh one you're looking for, there's only one angel that's ever been said where God warned that this angel did not have to forgive you. This is the Exodus angel. There's no other name for him. He is something else. He is something different. He, of course, has the two pillars. During the day, the pillar looked like a cloud. And at night, it looked like a pillar of fire. Now, with that in mind, that explains a whole lot else that we're not going to take time to get into. We need to breach the next step. Why is this focal point where the seven gears meet, where they come together, or if we're using the beach ball analogy, or your triangle analogy, it really doesn't matter. We've got a beach ball with seven different sizes, so inside the beach ball you're holding... There's seven different incrementally smaller balls. They're all going to touch right where gravity is, right at the bottom of the biggest one. Why is this called Jacob's Ladder? Why is this point, this finite point by which they can come? This event horizon happens in a finite place. Now we know from the angel that wrestled with Jacob... We know that his 24 hours was about to expire, and he infers that he arrived at the beginning of the day. And now a new day was going to come, or a new time, and he said, I have to leave. I have to get out of here. My time is... Why, Aaron? Because of opposition. Because his ladder was only in one finite spot when the earth rolled around to be in direct opposition from this star. That was the latter. Now, why don't you describe how... Well, it's really common knowledge that a ladder is a perfect way to describe in a two-dimensional plane how you can travel without moving. 
Because this ladder, you can walk east of it or west of it or north of it or south of it. But when you get on this ladder and you start climbing, if you're in a two-dimensional world, you're, you're not traveling. You're not moving. You're changing altitude. And that's a perfect way to describe, well, the seven heavens. It's a perfect way to describe it. But you're trying to translate this fantastic advanced knowledge, you can't just do it with one story. It takes the whole word. Just exactly what you were talking about, the difference between the Elohim. And of course we know that everybody tries to pronounce God's name, but you can't. This is common knowledge. God took the vows. Now, the, now, all scholars on this planet will tell you that the closest you can come to pronouncing Hebrew is probably what the Samaritans pronounce. But the Samaritans will themselves will tell you, nah, you can trump that. We don't really know how it was pronounced 3,000 years ago. So, actually trying to pronounce God's name is a joke, Aaron. You can't do it. He took the vows from you. That's why one of the prophecies... That is a promise, is when we are given back a pure language. That's what he's going to do. He's going to give us back the vowel so we know how to speak it. But you used a perfect analogy there with why uh, Genesis chapter 1 speaks the way that it does. So why don't you talk a little bit about this idea of Jacob's ladder and, and this point, how it's described in the scripture and the entities involved with it, and your thoughts about it. Go ahead. Well, the concept of Jacob's ladder is found in Genesis 28, verse 12. He, Jacob, had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching into heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the only other verse in the Bible that says, has this same wording, ascending and descending, is in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, 51. And it says, and he, Christ, said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And as you can see, this ladder, the, the angels have to move up and down it. This is how they move throughout, throughout our reality. And there's some way we can we can try to understand the heavens as being a, a rung of the ladder or something like that. You can move through those to get to the top where you would meet Elohim or the Trinity. Um, in the Midrash Rabbah in, for Leviticus uh, chapter 29 verse 2, it describes the, the ladder as being the exiles which the Jewish people would suffer before the coming of the Messiah. So, that being said, this ladder has always been connected with Christ from the beginning. Right. And he just told you that there's coming a time when all of those will be, well, the same area. They'll be the same diameter. And they will come together. And on that day, of course, is that magical day when, well... Christ will be the focal point. Christ will be the touch point where all of these heavens come together. He just came right out and told one of his disciples this point blank range. Well, we know this. Um, that when Christ ascended to heaven, he sat at the right hand of the Father, correct? That's correct. 
But when John, the Apostle John, has his vision of God, he doesn't see Christ sitting at his right hand, does he? No, he does not. No, he he sees a lamb come before him. Mm-hmm. Looking That's as right. if it's... But he's not but he's not sitting on that throne beside him. And nope. that when you think of that, when the Father comes to earth, correct? Then you've you've taught us that you've pointed this out to us through the scriptures that the Father will impact Mount Paran um after the millennial reign of Christ. Mm-hmm. And then all the spirits will be judged. Mm-hmm. But when the Father comes, say these heavens come back together, the new Jerusalem descends, paradise comes down to us, would he become the Trinity? Right. Well, no, because the Father is there mm-hmm. and the Son is there, correct? That's right. So how would you interpret it? Interpret this? Would they would the Father and the Son become one when when uh after this happens? Or how how are you how would you describe this? Well, I'd have to describe it as a marriage, son. Because you forget that the reason why you didn't see Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father was because the Holy Spirit wasn't there. I mean that's the whole reason why Christ told you, When I go, I will send down the Holy Spirit. So literally he said, uh, me and the Holy Spirit will swap will swap places. Okay? So you know this, right? I'm describing to you a fact that the Holy Spirit descended upon the 120 in the upper room. And from there, it's been a bonfire that has expanded into a, well, obviously, a forest fire or a ground fire. Of course, we've been having many fires here lately, um, last year especially in Montana. They're called brush fires. And they spread out in a circle, don't they? So, we have a piece of that fire that began to burn in the upper room. You know this for a fact. As a matter of fact, we're only having this conversation through the Holy Spirit. Aaron, that's it. Now, the only way you can describe that is to describe this. That at the same time that the Son sets down with the Father... Uh, must be when he's married. Gotta be. Has to be, because, well, the Holy Spirit's here with us. That's what our temple is for. That's what your body is for. It's supposed to be a crucible, a furnace that contains the Holy Spirit. Does he not say this? I, I mean, is that not what he said, or, or have I taught you something else? Does not God come right out and say that your body is a temple for the what? The Holy Spirit. That's right. So the only way you could make this work is if you said, well, how, how, you know, how can God teach these bunch of, you know, these bunch of uh, lowly intelligent humans how this is going to work uh, without getting really complicated or saying something stupid? Well, there's only one way to do it. Have the son get married and then set down at the right hand of the Father. That's well, the only the, way to do it. Well, before we confuse everybody, all those who do not know, describe, we know that the marriage of Christ is when he comes and um, in a sense marries the uh, the church. 
That's right. The bride. Yes, yeah. we were called the bride, the the church um, who remains to the end, to the end of the tribulation. And this is his bride. And what does the Bible say? Will the bride ever leave him? Will we ever be taken from him? No. No. And and we've talked about this in another show. Um, when man and wife come together, they become one flesh. Right. That's right. With this in mind, the only way he could translate to you that information of seven heavens being the same diameter or seven gears being the same diameter and you have to just stack them up on top of each other is to describe it in that manner. That's the only way he can do it. And Well, let, it, let and, us consider this. Go ahead. Well, that's just the simplest way you can put it in the language for a child to understand. It's actually quite perfect. Go ahead. Well, so, as I was mentioning before, was Ezekiel or John seeing the Holy Spirit, or was he seeing the Father? Maybe that's a question for another show, Aaron. What does your gut tell you? Don't I just know what I just know what I always thought, and I always thought it was the Father, but I'm not sure. Well, Aaron, you're correct, son. Even though you don't have the technical data, because you have the Holy Spirit, your gut will always lead you in the right direction. Yeah. Now, the, now, the Holy now, Spirit. Now, wait a minute. Stop. Well, let me ask you this again. Who were the two gentlemen that you uh, mentioned and asked me who they were talking to? Did you say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or who did you say? Ezekiel and John. Okay, let me ask you something. Why couldn't have Ezekiel seen the Holy Spirit, son? I just told you about the event horizon in the upper room, right? Yes. It was always right in front of you, you just... Well, it's kind of looking at an advanced physics problem. I mean, sometimes one equation can be the entire length and breadth of the chalkboard, correct? Yes. It doesn't mean you don't know it because you're standing there looking at it and God's giving you the answer. But that doesn't mean that right now, today, it's not too complicated for you to understand. I mean, you're sitting there looking at it, you got the answer, and yeah, you got it. You know what the answer is, but... <laughs> All the technical data is just a wee bit too much for you today, but not tomorrow. So, with that in mind, boy, we're down to like eight minutes, Aaron. Um, I did want to talk about this. I'm not going to be able to talk about both instances, but we can talk about the event that we mentioned before, the 1561 celestial phenomenon over Nuremberg. Now, I made a video and put it up on Facebook so that people would be able to take a look at it. You all might want to take a look at that post. It has no audio because I was going to explain it here. But Aaron, I calculated the heavens. I went back uh, to this day, uh, the morning of April 14, 1561. I punched in the geographical coordinates for Nuremberg, and it says that this happened at dawn. When you go there, you can plainly see that the constellation directly over Nuremberg at the time 
was Cygnus. Now, I ask you to look into Cygnus and what possibly could be going on there. What did you find? Has anybody ever found anything special about the constellation Cygnus? Um, any phenomena associated with it or anything like that? Um, well, Andrew Collins uh, wrote a book called The Cygnus Mystery, and it was concerning the Cygnus, the swan. And he pointed he points out that ancients all over the world has pointed to Cygnus as being the um, the origin of uh, cosmology in one way or another. Well, that puts us into a different ballgame, doesn't it, Aaron? Because now we can understand, well, exactly why there would have been a conflict in the heavens. And take note that that day at dawn, there were certain celestial objects that were in the constellation of the 153 fish, which is the pivot points in the heavens, where the heavens rock back and forth. And you'll take note all the many things described about that day, and it'll blow your mind. And let's go ahead and do our closing comments because we're coming up on an hour. And uh, I don't know, you might be able uh, to give out some hints and clues as to what our future broadcasts are going to be. But your closing comments, please, Aaron. Well, uh, I want you all to realize that the Bible has much greater meaning than what meets the eye. And this is what rabbis throughout the centuries have understood. They study it every moment of their life, trying to understand what it meant. But we just read our English translations, and, well, our English translations will disagree. That's why we look into our source languages, the Hebrew and the Greek, because they can say a lot more than our language could ever say. And this isn't just spiritualism. It's not just um, spiritual meanings when you read the Bible, because there's a thousand different meanings there. It tells you science, as we've pointed out here. It tells us the past, the present, and the future. We just need to open our eyes and read it like that. With open eyes. I mean, we got to... Of course, we have our theological upbringings that taught us some of the things we know. But sometimes you just need to put away those things and just listen. What is it saying, for real? Without any prejudice towards one idea? Just listen. And it will tell, without your your prejudices, without your um, original standpoints, you'll actually hear what it's saying. You just have to silence all the sound. All right, ladies and gentlemen, until next time, Christian Conspiracy Theory is signing off. You can uh, send us your suggestions for future shows if you'd like. Um, we've got several planned in the uh, works right now, so we do hope you enjoy. Aaron, your goodbyes. God bless y'all.